And I think that that's important for students to know that you don't have to follow anybody else's formula. You can be aware of a path that they've taken, but you can also just say, you know, screw it, man, I'm going this way. I'm going to jump off the cliff and build my wings on the way down. friends, and welcome to the 34th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. Happy March, print friends! I hope you're doing well, enjoying spring or autumn, depending on what hemisphere you're in, and washing your hands regularly with soap and water. You're supposed to do it for as long as you can sing the happy birthday song, but that's a terrible song, so please keep in mind you can also do it for as long as it takes you to sing the chorus of Dolly Parton's Jolene, which I'm usually singing once a day anyway, so you may as well do it at the basin. This episode like all episodes, is made possible by Pine Copper Lime's amazing Patreon supporters. Supporters like Adam Finkelston. Adam, as well as being a gosh darn hero for supporting something he believes in, is an artist and the co-editor of The Hand magazine. If you're not familiar with The Hand, it's a beautiful, in-real-life publication featuring photography and printmaking from around the world. You can check it out, learn more, purchase copies, or see about being featured in it yourself at thehandmagazine.net. One last little bit of housekeeping before we dive in. In case you haven't heard, Pine Copper Lime will be at the Vendor Fair at the Southern Graphics Council International Conference in San Juan. That's in just about a month's time, and this year I'll be doing that as well as hosting a live taping in front of a live audience, and I would very much love to see all of your beautiful faces there. Follow Pine Copper Lime on Instagram for more details, but I cannot wait to see everyone. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Join the party. And speaking of SGCI in San Juan, I am very excited to share this week's interview with you, featuring Joseph Velasquez. Joseph has created a registry for print shops and art spaces in Puerto Rico where they can list items that we, as printmakers descending on the island, can bring with us. There's a link in the show notes to this, and I want to make sure to point this out to you at the top of the show so it doesn't get lost in our chat. Joseph is an incredible storyteller, and in this episode we get into his growing up traveling throughout the Southwest in Texas with his father, his early influences of Chicano art, his time in the Air Force, traveling as the printmakers on call for the band Spoon with Drive-By Press, and so much more. Joseph is nothing but good vibes and community building, and it is certainly everything that we need to hear right now. So sit back, relax, and prepare to believe in the power of print with Joseph Velasquez. Hey Joseph, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, Miranda? I'm really good. Thank you so much for joining me. I know this is a busy time for you with SGCI on the horizon and everything. Yes, 
it is busy, but it's absolutely my pleasure. I've been a, a long time listener and it's uh, really a great opportunity for, and I'm excited to share, uh, what's been going on and what's uh, happening with SGCI in Puerto Rico. I know, I know. I feel like we have so much to, to talk about. But as you know, as a longtime listener, I always like to get a little bit of background on my guests for people who aren't maybe familiar with them. So would you mind answering the who you are, where you are, and what you do question? Absolutely. I am... Joseph Velasquez. I'm an assistant professor of printmaking at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, Florida, where I've been for the past three years. Previously, I toured as a traveling printmaker with Drive-By Press. I'm one of the co-founding members and an alum of UW-Madison. Go Badgers. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? Art played a giant role. I grew up, I lost my mom at an early age at five, and my father raised me. Mm. And we moved back and forth between San Fernando, California, Los Angeles, to the Austin, Texas area. Through my formidable years going up through middle school, we lived in L.A., and I grew up in the barrio in Pacoima, seeing the murals, the Chicano art. I am Chicano. And what that is for the listeners that are unaware of what a Chicano uh, is. So really uh, an activist of a, a woke Latino that grew up in Southern California. And many of the roots that I have there are indigenous to that area. And it's a prideful, proud people that likes to iterate, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us, mm-hmm. you know, fist in the air activist for the proletariat and my grandma was an artist Uh, she sang uh, she played the organ and um, she liked to draw and um, you know growing up with my father my grandmother would give me art supplies all the time and you know she would always in the states we would have these commercials like do you like to draw paint or doodle you could be on your way to being a serious artist and they send you this test to draw this pirate or a turtle I remember just, those. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure like a lot of listeners remember that too and be like, dang, you know what? I did that too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would get those in the mail and um, it kind of started off with that. You know, I can really, uh, to this day, I can still nail that turtle, man. I can draw it so well. <laughs> and that was kind of honestly the, the the hilarious beginning of it all. But then I also really got into uh, portraiture and my grandma had these, images that she would put up of all my family that had served in the military. And I come from a long line of veterans that have fought uh, for the States. It's really wild about how many conflicts and mm-hmm. uh, some family, uh, the history that we have. And I would actually draw them. And, you know, I look back and I'm sure they look like bad tattoo drawings <laughs> of poor, but for a little eight year old kid doing them, I can see, you know, my grandmother still has them and I can, I can see uh, kind of where I came from with that or how I was captivated in my own family's personal history and the narrative affect my later work and, you know, what a big influence that portraiture had and what I would get into later on. And so that was kind of the start along with, and I would say with printmaking, uh, one of my big influences was designing tattoos for my cousin. <laughs> they would get these what are and uh, we would also get this engraver that, that we would engrave on the back of the windshields of my cousin's Monte Carlo. I would do them in what was I thought or what we all called Mexican letters. 
but it turned out to be Old English. I remember doing on the side window uh, of his Monte Carlo, The Praying Hands by Durer, having no idea who Albert Durer was. That's just so funny that I ended up becoming a printmaker after all that. Yeah, it's funny how I, I see the, the Durer Praying Hands just everywhere. And, you know, you're just like out and about and you're like, I don't think anyone knows, you know, that that's like one of our, one of our our early printmaking heroes. Yeah. So it sounds like just kind of what you're saying about like the, the decals on the cars and the tattoos that along with activism, that art and visual culture and visual communication is a big part of Chicano culture. Would you say that's true as well? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And then I know, you know, for you're saying like you moved around quite a bit and a lot of people will talk about using art as a way to connect with people, especially if they were like a new kid at a school or anything like that. You know, they were the kid that could draw the turtle or something like that. Did you find that as well? Yeah, I mean, altogether, I think I went to 15 different schools before I graduated high school and I was kind of the perpetual new kid and the way to... And I think it really affected my social skills, um, my communication skills later on. And, you know, for you won't be shy for long <laughs> when you're <laughs> right. that times. And it also gave me the opportunity to see how, you know, a, a change of pr- perspective and a change of place offer give you the opportunity to reinvent yourself. I looked at it as a superpower instead of a disability mm-hmm. whenever I would have friends that knew each other since kindergarten and you know i'm like wow and you guys are dating and you're in high school that's almost gross um for me like that constant change like it required me to you know use what skills i had to i don't know kind of fit in right away and you know going to school in the 90s in the early 90s in high school and i guess even my sister's boyfriends who were all had like mullets and big into Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And what I began doing was using one of my grandma's cross-stitch hoops and I would pin a uh, pillowcase over that. And then I would just draw like an Iron Maiden or I'd do like a Motley Crue, like goat or like the rock and roll hands or whatever, something evil looking. And uh, they would cut it out and they would put it on the back of their denim jacket and they would be so punk rock. And they boom, like, who did that? And that's Joseph, that quiet nerd. And like, all right, you get this with the seniors now. And I'm like, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I think that that, that just speaks to that kind of un- that wonderful universality of of being able to communicate visually is that it's something that sort of instantly lights up anyone, like being able to see someone who can draw well or can can just express themselves, you know, outside of that that verbal world that so much of our life is taken up in. It's just, it's really incredible. Yeah, it is. And it's so unique that like an image can speak, you know, beyond language and that you can make somebody laugh. You can make somebody smile, which is something that you draw spontaneously. And mm-hmm. just to give somebody that kind of emotional reaction, I think is like, you know, hey, it's kind of mm-hmm. why we become artists. We want the response, you know, I like it. Absolutely. And I think the way visual culture has that kind of, for the most part, you know, images can have this way where they have almost an instantaneous sort of pop of understanding in the way that when you're trying to speak to someone, it's always going to be linear. You're always going to have to be using building blocks to make, you know, first A, B, C. Okay, now we're at D. Now I understand. Um, And the way we can just take in, especially images that are kind of in the realm of like pop culture a bit or um, pop art, 
um, which I think we'll get into, but I think that a lot of, you know, your body of work shares some of that pop art kind of aesthetic where you understand it intuitively and at once and it's a bit like a lightning bolt and it's such an incredible way of communicating and connecting with people. Once you graduated high school, did you did you know you wanted to go to art school? Was that something that since it had been such a big part of your life that it was something that had been on the horizon for you for a while? No, actually, and this is something I don't share uh, that often because it's been just a different chapter in my life. But at that time, uh, I was playing music, and I was playing guitar, and I had a pretty nice mullet coming in. <laughs> and uh, when I lived in Austin. Everybody was in a band. So I was in a band, too. And I was putting in, like, honestly, like my senior year of high school, I was putting in, like, uh, 10 and 12-hour days over the summer uh, just playing guitar, just practicing wow. scale modes learning, actually like doing the entire Beatles and Rolling Stones soundbook, uh, trying to learn as much as I could. And I wasn't any good at that time. And it took (laughs) me a while, but I had the desire, you know, and, Mm. uh, and, uh, at the time I kind of reached a crossroads where I was like, all right, well, I am a horrible student and I'm broke. And I was working at a welding shop at the time. And, I was just grinding off these metal cabinets that would hold forklift batteries. And I'm there and I'm working with a few other guys with my friend Efain and he's talking to me in Spanish and he says, Puedes leer? And I said, What? And he's like, He asked me if I could read. And I said, Yeah. And he said, Well, fool, you should be the boss because you shouldn't be holding that thing right there where it says not with your hand. And no sooner I seen another guy do the exact same thing and his hand got smashed. <gasps> and it just like, it terrified me. And I'm like, Oh man, I'm never going to play guitar again. And, uh, that startled me and right next door to the material transport company where I worked was an Air Force recruiter and I said you know what this could be my chance and I have this like I said earlier the family history was service uh, mm-hmm. in the military and uh, I enlisted and I served four years in the United States Air Force and I got to spend a little time overseas and a lot of time in uh, San Antonio Uh, Texas. And it was towards the end of my military tenure that uh, I was in a couple of bands. And uh, one of the bands, this is insane, one of the bands got to, and this is like 1994 or three, we got to play during the Lollapalooza where the Ramones and Soundgarden and Metallic touring on it. And we got to go to a few stops and my band won the Battle of the Bands in San Antonio, and we got to go on the radio station and oh play a Christmas gosh. special. It was like the it was like a dream. Um, but there was so much infighting and so much collaboration and ego in bands that yeah. it's just I honestly began having a greater time making the flyers for the shows we were doing, and I honestly began having this draw and pull into printmaking screen printing in particular, uh, because of that, you know, I was like, how are they making these, uh, stencils and, uh, screen printing super, you know, punk rock looking stuff. And yeah, that was one of the things uh, that really got me going, um, into printmaking. And so it was at that time when we reached a point after when I got out of the military, the, a, a year after I had gotten out, I had just decided, you know what, the band stuff is great, but I want a yeah, softer landing pad. I'm just going to go to school as a backup. And I went to school as a creative writing major. And um, 
I got a scholarship um, for writing. And um, as I was going and as I was learning, I was drawing pictures to the stories I was writing about my family's history and about these narratives. And I was urged by the English department that, hey, you might want to consider pursuits in visual arts because your pictures are a little bit better than your written words. (laughs) (laughs) And that caused me to go to um, the printmaking lab where I was going to sign up uh, for a class. And I walk in and I see this guy that looks very similar to me. And he's standing at a press that I didn't know what it was. And he's uh, pulling up the blankets. He's grabbing a paper. And I just walk up to him and I was like, whoa, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I saw him pull the print off a relief block and he sets it over and he said, this is a woodcut. And I was like, wow. And he said, you can have this. And I said, I can have this. And he said, watch, I'm going to make another one. And he began rolling the, the ink out and did it again. And my mind was blown. And uh, that person was uh, John Hancock from the Amazing Hancock Brothers, one of the uh, big daddy of the outlaw printmakers. And uh, I signed up for his class and I'm drinking his Kool-Aid and, uh, here I am now. That's incredible. And so, yeah, you you like kind of just stumbled upon it in a classroom. And so, was that was that just kind of it? Were you like, okay, this is this is my life now. This is like this is what I want to do. Yeah, it's one of the things that really captivated me about printmaking when I when I decided that's what I wanted to do. It was because of how democratic it was in its way that it was accessible. I was painting at the time too. I enjoyed painting and I was selling some paintings in Austin. However, I felt like those were precious objects that just went to one person and they were gone and they were out of my life. Where woodcut was more sculptural, I was changing this thing. I was changing the surface, I was interacting with it. It was kind of a dance because I had my intention, but sometimes wood grain and happenstance or a slip hand or a dull tool makes you follow instead of lead. And so I love that interaction with it too. And so. The blocks were something personal to me, but the range and what I could do with the woodcut. And the fact that I could print a woodcut on a piece of beautiful Reeves BFK and I could enter it into a call for entry and it could be exhibited in a gallery. And that same woodcut I can print up on some cheap paper and I can go out in Austin and I can wheat paste it under a bridge or someplace. And then I can also get that same wood block and I can print it on a T-shirt. And so I love the idea that a kid wearing a T-shirt of the woodblock I made passing the wheat paste on on the wall on the way to gallery to see it behind glass of all coming from the same matrix. That kind of just, it really captivated me that printmaking was this one medium that could really ride the elevator of social attainment from the bottom floor to the top of the ivory tower. And one of the reasons I was so keen to, to talk to you is that you've had this whole side of drive-by press, you're touring with bands, the gig posters, the t-shirts, the wheat paste, but you're also a professor at a university as well. And so you seem to have been someone who hasn't seemed to had to make that hard choice, which I think a lot of students and people um, feel that kind of pressure is that, is, is you're saying, you know, you know, either I can be this sort of free working artist that answers to no one or I need to you know start writing a 20,000 word thesis where I make sure to reference Foucault to get my work up in a gallery behind glass I think that the only pressure that I've ever had has been self-imposed to do that 
you know, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's any different than any other artist goes through. I'm a little bit exposing myself here. Uh, but again, this is great in case any students listen to it. When I was traversing new waters, I constantly would have doubt and I would doubt myself. I would doubt uh, what I would be going through. I'd go through depressions. I'd suffer through, you know, I'm not supposed to be here isms. They're going to know I'm not supposed to be here. Um, <laughs> you know, the yeah. truth is the proof is in the pudding with what you do and what you've done. And there's the beauty and the value of the journey. And now if, if I just want to satiate that interest and like, all right, push, and I'm going to go through this direction, that's fine. But I, I would hope that my own practice would lead me there and not be dictated by a professor. I think that one of those models that is changing within schools right now is that schools are really pushing a lot more of this realization that they need to have more community engagement. The schools need to be way more inclusive after so many years of being so exclusive. Mm -hmm. And it, they need to do that. So schools are kind of looking for uh, new approaches for that and representation. And, um, you know, when I saw the ad for this school, I said, man, this would be a dream. And one of the things that I'd always looked at, you know, as a Chicano artist going to school, I've always been the underrepresented, like there'd be like one Latinx person there and that would be me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I oftentimes would make the, the joke, you know, uh, about my time in Wisconsin, which I love, love, love my graduate school experience. I love my school, Wisconsin. Uh, but I would often make a joke that growing up in Southern California and Texas, when I go to Wisconsin, I quickly found out that the snow wasn't the only cold white thing there. <laughs> oh <my laughs> I would say that. But, you know, I saw exactly why I needed to be there. And I saw that I needed to not represent other Latinos and being like an emissary for us, uh, but to be a groundbreaker. Like, all right, I'm one of the first, but there's going to be a whole bunch after me. Uh, there'll be more tomorrow. I think there's a line from Hamilton about that, but there'll be more of us tomorrow. That's proven true. It's proven so true when I just see on Instagram today and how beautifully represented the Latinx community is now. Honestly, wasn't there 15 years ago when I went to uh, grad school. And so not to stray too far away from uh, the subject and the question you had asked about that pressure, but those are the kind of things that have constantly been considerations of mine about engagement, about having that you know, reaction or having that intent with my work. And I think that it still leads there. And I think that that's important for students to know that you don't have to follow anybody else's formula. You can be aware of a path that they've taken, but you can also just say, you know, screw it, man, I'm going this way. I'm going to jump off the cliff and build my wings on the way down. Now, one thing I will say about my work is that from the military to undergrad, I took a year off and then I went to grad school in Wisconsin. And it was there that I founded Drive-By Press with Greg Nanny. And uh, we proposed it as a thesis uh, project to just go to 13 schools. We wanted to mount a press in the back of our vehicle. We wanted to go to places that didn't have printmaking programs and we wanted to give a demonstration on the history of western printmaking and bust out the press leave them uh, a few demonstrations interact with the public put the printmaking press in a place out of context of where it would usually be seen that kind of interaction and community engagement and man fine art printmaking this is something that has stayed within kind of in pocket and you don't get a, an opportunity to really engage in the general public, like let's say painting, maybe screen printing does, 
But, you know, you can't be taking a mezzotint and a giant press and, like, be going out to the strip mall and showing somebody. But Greg and I did that. We were able to captivate a different audience. And at the same time, we were kind of defining our our progression or interest and focus of artists, of the work we were going to do. Being around all these amazing artists as we progressed beyond the 13 schools, beyond the 50 schools. And we did it for eight years. And we met all these different printmakers. We saw all these demos. And Greg and I would just put them in a little toolbox. Like, all right, I'll learn how to do this. I learned how to do this. And it was incredibly influential because on the road, we would stay in these printmakers' homes and we would see the generosity that they have with their time, their passion, their knowledge, and their willingness to share all of that was extremely influential. And it just kind of fueled our tank to keep going to the next place where we would just do it and do it. And unfortunately, this was before Instagram and like nobody really looked at our MySpace that we had rocking with that uh, at the time. But like now I'm like, man, if we would have done this, we'd have so many more followers. That was kind of the really the jump off point. And now as a professor, that's something that I do here at my university. And uh, I'm I'm really gracious and I'm really uh, uh, fortunate to be at a place that welcomes that and uh, really wants more of that. And I got some big, big plans with doing more of that in hopes that other printmakers can do it in their areas, too. Uh, just to quickly to share one of the things that I have on my plate. And this, again, this is, comes and stems from the influence of Drive-By Press and doing these community visits is that, you know, when the dean asked me, hey, um, how's recruitment with printmaking from local high schools or regional areas? I'm like, well, they don't really offer printmaking in their programs. And he says, well, what can we do about that? And then I came up with the idea of like, hey, what if my school buys me a tabletop press that I can then loan out to local schools for periods of study, units of study, and take it to them where I can have my grad students or my undergrads give a presentation like Drive-By Press would, and then we leave the press there for six weeks. Then following that six weeks, we take the press and we go to a different school. Then we go to a different school. And we're able to go around the area introducing the students that don't have the space, or the instructors don't have the space of their materials for a unit printmaking, but what if we could provide that? And so it's kind of like a library system using a press around areas that don't have, you know, presses. So that's one of the upcoming things that I'm working on that is still, like I said, there's these little things that have branched off from drive-by. It's not to force that kind of academic lens on it, but it seems like what you're talking about really is relational aesthetics. To sort of divorce ourselves from what is a very old and privilege-driven idea that the object is the end goal, the end, the end-all be-all of art making are these privileged objects that can be sold and can be put behind glass where no one's supposed to touch it and only certain people in certain circles have access to it and only certain people in cir certain circles can own it and that's what art's about. That is an old idea and everything you were talking about with that community engagement and that the practice and the research and all of that, it comes from that interaction and that transfer of knowledge and that building of community. That's where the juicy bits are. Yeah. yeah. That's the fun stuff. I mean, it's, you know, I really glossed over what we did really quickly with drive-by, but it was a time that when, you know, when we were at like the height of it and let's say we were like in year six or seven, we had went to a couple of schools. We went to revisit a couple of schools 
And there was a grad student there that goes, hey, y'all are drive-by press. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you guys came to my school three years ago. And um, you guys are the reason why I'm in grad school for printmaking. And that just blew us away. We were like, what? And they're like, yeah, you showed us this artist. And you shared who Leopoldo Mendez was with me, Joseph. And that person changed the way I carved. And, you know, there was little moments like that that aren't lines that you can put on your CV. Printmaking medals of honor being like, oh, that thank you. That is a that is a beautiful thing you just sent me that just like really fulfilled me and made me feel like oh man that's that's better than an award right there to hear that someone still has that same excitement or i was able to share my passion that they too now share to have that as a a part of the body of work within somebody's opus is something beautiful with drive-by you went to universities but you also did some touring with bands like spoon and white rabbit how did that come about and what was that like you know, there's there's so many like weird coincidences that, that happen in life. Things come together and the way that the world turns and you're like, oh, this is a weird coincidence. And one of the things with Drive-By, this was after like on our first or maybe our second year, maybe our third year, we were in our pickup truck and the shocks were going out because we had a, man, it was like a 1500 uh, Rembrandt Pelican etching press in the back of the truck and it had a solid steel bed and this was the heaviest press. We should not have been traveling the country with this. <laughs> and uh, we had just went to the IFPDA print fair. We met with the print publishers there. We met with Bud Shark. Uh, we met with Sam Davidson, who you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sam Davidson, he was such a towering figure. Uh, Literally, him, six foot seven, yeah. <laughs> staring at Greg and I, and we're giving him the pitch about what we're doing with Drive-By because we asked the galleries, the publishers, if they would share slides with us so we can add it to our contemporary printmaking lecture on our tour. And uh, both Bud and Sam were just tickled with us. And, you know, I remember Sam, like, he actually touched the top of my head and said, you guys are the printmaking Lewis and Clark. You know, we'd love to support you guys. And we went out for a dinner and Bud asked us, hey, uh, is there anything we can do for you? And I was like, we just need slides, any images you can send. We would be so appreciative. And... We left at the print fair with just like ear to ear smiles. Greg and I were just mm. like floating. And then our truck broke down. Oh. It The transmission went out and we were going uphill and then we stopped and Greg goes, what's going on, man? And I said, you smell that? And there was a distinct smell whenever you burn your transmission and the truck had it. And, and we were at the end and... You know, we weren't in school anymore. We were afraid. We're already putting off the phone calls from Sally Mae trying to talk about student loans. And we're like, no, Greg, we're going to have to go adjunct somewhere. And we just saw the end. And, you know, we towed the car home. We're sad. And then we get this box in the mail. And it's a FedEx box with some amazing, amazing blue chip prints that the publisher sent us, along with a few checks that just said, go drive by go. And altogether, we had like $6,000 in checks that were given to us by publishers and gallerists to help us that we bought a brand new van. Well, it wasn't a brand new van. It was a new van to us. And it was a white van with no decals. It had one slight dent in it. And we had enough money to install a flat file and a new sliding mechanism for the press. And we was like, man, we're going to hit the road. We're going to do it again. So one of the first stops we hit was at LSU. And we were in Baton Rouge. And it was during a career day. 
And Baton Rouge has this little place called Free Speech Alley. And they have, I guess it's like at any other school when they have the fairs and they have these different marketing companies out there. And there was some marketing reps there from a, a company that represented uh, R.J. Reynolds. They approached us because, I mean, we would literally have, like, get this. We didn't mention about drug by, we were funded by small honorariums. The school would give us, like, 250 bucks or whatever. But when Greg and I had recognized that with this culture, with our culture nowadays, where people wear their beliefs on their sleeves, like, literally on their mm-hmm. chest with graphic tees, when we made the mix that allowed the oil-based ink to stay, and we would tell kids, we would tell students, hey, it's uh, $10 for one of our shirts, bring your own, it's five. And all of a sudden, we would be making anywhere from 500 to 1500 a school, and we'd be doing three schools a week. We were turning a pretty good dime once we had the van. We're at LSU, we have this line. It is a ridiculous line of about 75 kids with T-shirts in their hands, and they're looking to get what blocks. And the marketing rep saw this and said, whoa, what has that demographic so captivated? And they walk over to us and, you know, the event was over and they said, hey, you know, could you guys do this for a corporate client? And I honestly said, no, I don't think mm-hmm. the impetus is pure. Like, There's a reason why we're doing this. We take the money from the big schools and this enables us to go to a small community college. Then the rep slid a card over and it had how much money he was talking about. And I'm like, man, I don't have insurance right now. We absolutely can do this when and what bands are you talking about and what client and you know he had said it was for a cigarette company and i'm like okay i don't know and i was like what bands and he said spoon and spoon that just blew our mind because they have a song called 30 gallon tank and in that van that we bought it had a 30 gallon tank and greg and i used to blast that song over and over again when it was the other one's turn to drive And the thing is about a 30-gallon tank is you can drive 16 hours on a 30-gallon tank. Mm. And every eight hours, Greg and I would switch. If we were driving from Miami to Portland, Oregon, uh, which we once did that ridiculous trip, so ridiculous. Can you be here in three days? Yes, we can. (laughs) Nonsense. Um, And so to have that opportunity to work with Spoon, it just really blew us away. And we were quite nervous about it because we were – you know, from Austin, uh, I was, and I actually went to the same high school as the lead singer. And then to come to find out that the the keyboardist, the pianist, actually went to painting school there at UT in Austin. And then the bassist studied uh, printmaking and art in Kansas City. And so, like, they all knew what we were doing. They were well aware of printmaking. And um, it was so different with the drive-by stuff. We were making our own uh, designs. We had autonomy of whatever we made. There was nobody saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. But when you work for a corporate entity and you work for bands, not only does it have to go through personalities, it also has to go through legal. Right. And so there has to be this verification of like, where did your idea come from? You can't use this. You can only use this. They don't like this. Change this. Have this. And that's a totally different hat to wear. And I think Greg ended up wearing that hat a lot better. It was a better fit for him than it was for me. But that was a different thing. But it was something incredible to go from our broke down truck to the van to being on a couple hundred thousand dollar uh, tour bus. Uh, Being on the tour bus was fantastic. I mean, there's rules. You got to lay with your feet a certain way. Uh, There's etiquettes of the things you 
can and can't do on the bus or in the bathroom or mm-hmm. but be pressing on the console of the driver. Reggie was like well, this driver that we had for them and we were in front of a venue just to share one quick story and I pressed the button to equalize the uh, the hydraulics, so we'd be, we'd be level, and I think I released the septic tank under the bus in front of this venue in Oregon where, like, these kids were waiting in line to buy their tickets for the Walkman, and the bus driver just freaks out. We just have to make the block park somewhere else because it's like, it's not a cool it's just got a train. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Man, we got ink on the interior, on the leather seats, and Greg and I had to figure out ways to clean it up. One of our first gigs that we did with Spoon was at Webster Hall in New York, and the Walkmen were opening, and we had to carry this giant press. Again, we had the Pelican etching press. The crew, they hated us. They were like, oh my goodness, this heavy press again. And we had this apparatus where it would sit on it like Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. They had to lift it up like the Ark of the Covenant where there would be like four people on each side. (laughs) And they were walking it up the stairs at Webster Hall. And they were so mad. And before the tour, you know, the marketing company says to us, hey, um, can you guys print three to 500 shirts a night? And Greg and I were like, for this? Hell yeah, we can. No problem. Man, we had never printed 500 shirts in one night. Yeah. And that show at Webster Hall, we printed like 480 shirts. We had some Popeye arms that were swollen. <laughs> we were like exhausted. We looked like we were working in a coal mine. Greg had ink all over his face. Like, we were just, like, we were a printing mess. But the people absolutely loved it. These were an audience, uh, this was an audience that had never seen printmaking. And we would seriously have people come up. These kids would come up and be like, did you guys invent this? (laughs) No, don't think we did. Uh, And they were just blown away. We'd have kids like, you just, like, press the block on on my shirt or my chest? And I'm like, what? What weirdness? New York hipsters, all right, fine. And uh, we would comply, and um, people just loved the interaction. And, like, you know, we would print the shirt, we'd put a piece of newsprint on it, and we would roll it tight, and we would seal it with the tape that said, don't open for 48 hours. We had our dryer mix in it, and at the time, we didn't have the deal that we have with gambling right now and uh, producing our textile ink. Um, and so we were making our own, and we'd have to make it on spot and uh, it worked and I remember a few weeks after that being in Brooklyn and I'm walking down in Williamsburg and I see this uh, this kid's wearing the shirt that I made and he points right at me and he goes hey man you made my shirt and he lifts up and he gives me a high five and I'm like oh this is a great great moment and not five minutes later comes another guy and he's wearing a shirt again another one that we made and I just point, I said, hey, man, I made your shirt. And he looked at me and he looked and he said, and it looks good on me, too. And he rolled his eyes and walked away. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Williamsburg. <laughs> I think um, speaking of this kind of, you know, community involvement and engagement, I'd love to chat a bit about your involvement in SGCI 2020, which is going to be in Puerto Rico, because you've been involved in really 
pushing this idea of the ways in which this conference that so many of us attend can be more engaged in the communities that we're just kind of landing in for a weekend or really a week and taking over. And, and I think particularly having heard your practice and how it tends to all stem around this, this engagement, I think it's a great opportunity to hear about how you're taking that interest um, and hopefully changing the face a little bit of the Southern graphics. Yeah. Well, it first began at the last SGCI in Dallas uh, during the members meeting. And I, at that time, gave a proposal about making a site visit to be able to establish some connections to have like drive-by press type visits by our members um, that we could engage. So that way we could have more participants going to the conference as opposed to just attendees and how we could also affect um, local uh, printmaking recruitment for the schools by going to high schools and giving stuff, uh, demonstration supplies and materials so they can uh, do units of study within printmaking in those areas. And uh, just to also take an assessment of current printmaking status and needs of all shops. I had expressed that I felt that the conference would just stay in one fancy hotel and we would only go to the the best schools of the you know printmaking area and what i propose is that we go to other institutions that offered courses in printmaking workshops in printmaking uh or you know other printmaking studios that might be in need Mm -hmm. and perhaps that people going to the conference could bring that screw or that spring from that Vandercook that they have for their SP20, or they can have, you know, this extra blanket or this ink or this roller that they don't use that somebody is really in great need of and kind of create a registry for those for each and upcoming conference. Everybody said, yeah, we're on board. And everybody got excited about it. Then the rubber hit the road. (laughs) (laughs) I made the visit with John Hancock to Puerto Rico and we did our assessment we met some amazing printmakers and learned about the rich history that printmaking has in Puerto Rico and San Juan in particular and how many presses that were there. But we also learned about the damage that they had sustained because of the hurricane and now the earthquakes that have kind of frozen a lot of printmaking budgets, how that also affected some ability to repair some of the existing presses that were in need. And uh, I wrote a report when I came back. I had proposed, hey, what if, you know, we create a registry. Uh, I found some schools for some visits. And I found a school that I felt that the press was in such bad shape that maybe we can get together and come up with an idea on how we can fund it. And uh, I asked around for help. And uh, Hannah March Sanders and Blake Sanders joined me. And we were like a triumvirate where... One would do something, the other one would match, and then the other one would match. And so our efforts were constant. And uh, like I said, none of us were SGCI board members, that we were just members Mm -hmm. that had uh, put together the registry. Hannah did a great job in researching and finding that out. Blake and I began to call out to artists for the Indiegogo campaign that uh, we had come up with, that we said, hey, we're going to ask artists and print shops for work that we can use as perks for the press. And, you know, the first thing I did is I emailed Bud Shark and Bud Shark said, absolutely. Mm. And he said, what print do you want? And I picked out this Enrique Chigoya print 
And that print went so fast. <laughs> and I asked, you know, some of the uh, Madison alum and uh, uh, faculty from there, I asked Jack Damer, and without hesitation, he sent a print. You know, in our registry, we had prints by Catherine Polk. We had... Uh, Nicole Han, we had John Hitchcock, we had, you know, the list goes on and on of these amazing printmakers that have donated prints to the cause, um, and they went. And uh, we asked um, different vendors, and McLean sent us all kinds of tools. Yeah, Gamblin sent us some ink. In um, our registry, um, Speedball sent ink. Everybody has done such a part and having this and the community responded and they backed, they backed it. And, you know, to be totally candid, I really thought that we might only raise $5,000 and we'd end up giving, uh, the person in need of a press, like, Hey, we couldn't raise enough, mm -hmm. but here is a gift to get other printmaking supplies because a press is like a really giant thing. And I don't know how we we're going to get here. Um, I thought maybe we'd find a used one. Uh, we got three quarters the way and we raised close to $15,000 in just 60 days. We were then contacted by Takash and they said, how close did you get Joseph? And I talked to David and he said, you know what, from the Takash family, we'd like to fill in the remaining amount and uh, send a 22 by 48 floor model hand crank litho press, brand new, uh, to San Juan. And I was literally floored uh, like by that. I'm crying all over here on the side of the microphone. It's so amazing. Yeah. And I didn't think we were going to get there. <laughs> so it was really fantastic the way our community were to come together. And it just, you know, and then there was a lot of people who had a hand and a role, not just the people, you know, giving us the perks, the people buying the perks, but the SEC you know, behind the scenes people, Charles and Kate and our local host there and San Juan that would answer questions for us when we were going. So um, there has been so much work in emails, um, but it got done really by standing on the shoulders of giants. Like, you know, by asking these printmakers to give these perks is what really made these giant chunks of, you know, leaps to get to that final goal. And I'm hoping that it really sets precedent for something that we can do as a community when we come together like that. And again, it just, you know, argues for that big central thesis that I like to say about the power of print and the democratization of art and what we can do with the power of the multiple. That's super beautiful. I love it. It's, you know, printmaking forever, right? <laughs> Printmakers are just incredible, incredible people and incredibly generous. It's amazing that that you were able to to take the lead on that and really give everyone an opportunity to to come together. It's it's amazing. That's one thing I did not want is I didn't want anybody to think that uh, hey, this is a Joseph show. This is a drive-by press thing. There was nothing that connected it to anything that we've done with drive-by other than drive-by providing some ink and some shirts mm -hmm. that we made. You know, and I also wanted to include as many people in the community that wanted to come aboard, you know, and sell in the Puerto Grafico with the rest of us. It could be a really beautiful note to, to end on here. I'd love it if you could tell people where they can follow your work, where they can learn more about you, maybe learn about if they're coming and studying with you, if they're a young listener thinking about studying printmaking. Where can they find all of that? Right. Well, you can find me on Instagram 
am I am DBP Joseph. You can also find me on josephvelasquez.com and drivebypress.com. And I welcome any and all direct messages about students, you know, interested in my program. But I also am putting together a PDF for many of the students in Puerto Rico about uh, selecting a grad school and things you should know before mm. or questions and, you know, FYIs before you apply to grad school and things to be aware of, pros and cons of big schools, small schools, that kind of stuff and uh, tips about funding. And I love to share that because that's a continuation of what I did with Drive-By. So I welcome that. Um, also, uh, please visit Let's Leave a Press on Instagram and you'll see a link to the So Kind registry. And that is the printmaking registry where we're asking for uh, supplies for the shops that could benefit from those supplies and materials. There's one of a few places there that we are uh, assisting with supplies. One is called La Liga that has been there uh, for 50 years. And they're actually sending printmakers out to the southern part of the island uh, to give workshops um, and uh, printmaking is kind of relief, like humanitarian relief, just to get the the students and the kids' minds of the disasters from mm. the earthquakes. And uh, they were in need of all kinds of art supplies, even outside of printmaking. And so that's all connected onto uh, one of our posts on the Let's Leave a Press Instagram. And I'm really looking forward to meeting as many people as I can at the conference. So if anybody that does hear this and wants to come up, I'm not as mean as I look. I am rather approachable. I have dad jokes. And uh, yeah, I love talking and I love to share. Amazing. I love it. So yeah, I can put links to, to everything that you've talked about in the show notes um, and maybe get involved in helping with some of that community building and that and can come and can come and harass you at SGCI in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Yeah. Marina, thank you so much. It's, been a, it's an honor and a pleasure. I love what you've done as well for the printmaking community and how, you know, you've uh, bridged the gap and really connected us to a lot more. I mean, I'm really enjoying listening to your podcast and it's really a pleasure to be a part of this. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, it was super delightful to, to hear all the stories and I love your worldview on printmaking. It's just, I, it aligns so much with, with mine and, and how, why I love it and what I think it can do. Well, that's our show for this week. Make sure to check out that registry through the link in the show notes. My guest next week is Jessica Marie Mercy. And what will also be an SGCI lead-up special episode of Pine Copper Lime. Jessica's printmaking practice is about documenting and celebrating queer spaces, and this year she'll be hosting an incubator session with another PCL alum, Paul DeRuvo. We'll talk about her growing up in a conservative small town in eastern Washington, learning to fall in love with queer spaces, and what you won't learn about drag from RuPaul. This episode all episodes was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.